Hello, and welcome to the final episode of the second series of Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Research Project Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Language and Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Sophie Richard, art historian, museum specialist and acclaimed writer as we explore art museums in Japan of every variety. From her training at École de Louvre, Sophie has visited museums across the archipelago, broadening her understanding of what a museum can be and inspiring her to write a book on capturing this for the non-Japanese speaking art lover, The Art Lover's Guide to Japanese Museums. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good morning Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Oli. Thank you very much for having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? I have been researching art museums in Japan for over 12 years and published books and articles on the subject. I originally studied art history at the École du Louvre, which is located within the museum in Paris. So I feel at ease in the museum and I'm curious about the history. When I went to Japan for the first time, I believe about uh, 17 years ago now, I did what I do when I travel anywhere in the world. I visited museums. What brought me to Japan originally was a fascination for the country and its culture that I had since childhood. I was particularly attracted to the traditional aesthetics and architecture. Uh, there is nothing remarkable about that. The French and the Japanese have had a long-standing mutual love affair. I think I encountered Japanese art through books, initially on Western art, actually, as inevitably some of them would feature examples of Japanese art, since it was such an important source of inspiration for French artists, particularly towards the end of the 19th century. So that was my first encounter. But when I finally went to Japan, after dreaming about it for so long, I naturally planned to visit a lot of museums. This was for me the best gateway into the country and its culture from past centuries to today. And also I thought about museums as a thread to follow in devising my itineraries, not only in places such as Tokyo and Kyoto, but this quest, if you will, also led me to explore remote areas. The museums were the ideal excuse to travel far and wide. And going to all these museums was really rewarding, as during my visits I could see not only the art on display, of course, but I felt I could also experience many other things, outstanding examples of architecture from different periods, interior design, there were gardens to admire, as well as other fascinating and perhaps more subtle aspects, such as differences in the way to display artworks, the behavior of visitors in the galleries, the fact that sometimes we're asked to remove our shoes uh, before entering a building or a particular room. So all this was exciting. But I also quickly discovered that while there was a huge amount to see, it was not entirely straightforward. It was not easy to find information about museums, in particular, accurate description of what they were about, details about what they were showing. And while many were really interesting places to see, I also happened to visit venues that were disappointing, not particularly well run or with a poor collection. In parallel, when discussing my trips to Japan here in the UK, 
I was asked if there were many museums there or even if there were any at all. So all this combined made me think I should research them more systematically and write about them to introduce them to a foreign audience. Well, to focus on your background a little bit more, uh, having trained at the Louvre, one of the institutions most synonymous with the concept of the museum, what would you say was your understanding of the term museum um, after your training and how has that changed since? Well, the Louvre is, of course, this huge institution, a classic example of an encyclopedic museum. And this is how I thought about museums at the time, a place to look at objects that have been preserved and classified, a place to contemplate and reflect, already a place to learn, and um, also somewhere to get lost happily, I have to say, in time or physically. Museums offer a place and a context in which to look at things. But I suppose in the last three decades, perhaps, a lot has changed. Contexts are more varied and museums themselves come in many forms. For example, there has been a move from chronological presentation and from the usual hangs and displays. Um, I'm thinking about the Hara Museum Arc in Gumma Prefecture, a bit outside Tokyo, um, where visitors have access to a storage room, which provides the exciting feeling of going behind the scenes. The same feeling of going behind the scenes, and this time in complete darkness, is encountered at the Archidepo Museum in Tokyo where a collection of architectural models that are kept in the dark to better preserve them can be seen during special tours conducted by flashlights. Another evolution is the disappearance in some venues of an established route and visitors are free to wander and follow their own curiosity. A museum can also be a highly singular edifice, in itself very much a work of art, in which to immerse oneself in a unique artistic and physical experience. And here, for instance, I'm thinking about the Tishima Art Museum on an island inland sea. It's a really enchanting building by Nishizawa Riwe, who collaborated with artist Naito Rei to create a large single room that resembles a drop of water as it touches the ground and which is open to the elements. So visitors are asked to remove their shoes and to remain silent where they can observe a very calming organic art installation and how nature, be it the rain, the wind or dragonflies, can enter into the building. Museums are also now manifestly a place to meet and socialize, a place to experience art in the making, to see performances and also to reflect on societal issues. And museums have also become tourist destinations in themselves, to which dedicated art lovers are prepared to travel long distances. Often these destination museums are sites where nature has a strong role to play, including sometimes even inside the museum. So museums nowadays come in many forms, and some seem to afford a more deeply personal encounter, perhaps, where the visitor can decide to tailor their experience according to their own pursuits. So an evolution has certainly happened since the advent of the classic encyclopedic museum and my, my years at the Louvre. Yeah, definitely. I remember visiting the uh, Tashima Art Museum uh, my year abroad with friends and 
it's just a really, it's a really great example of how museums aren't just about the space and their collections, but also how uh, the curators want people to experience it in silence with the sounds of nature. It's really fascinating, yeah. So uh, let's turn to your recent book, The Art Lover's Guide to Japanese Museums, an ambitious attempt to capture the diverse range of museums across the Japanese archipelago. What inspired you to take on such an enormous task, and what did you find most challenging in researching it? I saw museums as portals to discover Japan. And I was really struck not only by their sheer number, but also by the range and the variety of museums that existed. So it felt a little bit uh, yeah, enormous, as you say, at times. When I began traveling to Japan, the information I could get was quite limited. I could find mention of some museums in guidebooks, but this usually consisted in only a few lines. I was also perusing books and magazines on architecture to find places to visit. These could feature museums because they were the work of celebrated or up-and-coming Japanese architects. But in that case, it was all about the building and there was nothing or close to nothing about what was happening inside. I was also keeping track of any mention of a Japanese museum in art books, for example, as the owner of an artwork that was illustrated, or as a lender to an exhibition. So my list was getting longer, but especially early on, about 15 years ago, I could not get any further information online. And if museums had a website, there would be precious little information in English. And I particularly remember a significant visit to Kyu Asakura House in Tokyo, which I actually stumbled upon by chance. Kyu Asakura is a historical home that has been preserved right in the center of the capital. It dates from 1919, so it's not very old, but it follows a traditional design and retains most of its original features and decorative elements. During that visit, I realized that all my senses were engaged. I enjoyed the smell of the tatami and the different woods. I could feel the tatami under my feet. Um, you know, this is a home, so visitors are asked to follow the custom of removing shoes at the entrance, which a number of other museums do. So I could feel that. I could hear sounds from the garden. This was a sensory experience as well as an intellectual one. And I had the house for myself that day. Um, so I guess I had a bit of an epiphany. And this was when I decided to write a book on the museums I had seen and those I was hoping to discover in Japan. I published the first book on the subject in 2014. Then, thanks to the support of the Toshiba International Foundation, I was able to pursue and expand the research to cover all regions of Japan. And I published a second book more recently. You asked me about the challenges met during researching the book, and there were a few. My research is based on personal visits, of course, and also on interviews in each of the museums with the director or curator. This was really key to me, as I wanted to hear about the history of the museum, the scope of the collection, obtain accurate and up-to-date information about each one. These meetings also gave me the opportunity to hear some captivating details and also, which I really enjoyed when it happened, revealing anecdotes. The logistics involved in planning those interviews were challenging. Obtaining a meeting was usually not too problematic, although it definitely got easier after my first book got published 
but it could be difficult to find a date. Indeed, a large proportion of museums in Japan will close between exhibitions, typically from one to two weeks. So I had to work around that, just like visitors have to when they consider a visit, really. These closing periods might be surprising for us, since most museums in the West will rotate exhibitions and remain open while they do so. But the size of many museums in Japan means this is a necessity, and this is usual practice. There was a lot of traveling involved and in isolated areas, this could be a challenge as public transportation could be limited or non-existent. There are a few museums that really require a good amount of determination and planning to get to them, but they are really worth it. As for example, the Isamunoguchi Garden Museum on Shikoku Island. In rare instances, I faced a reluctance to meet I have to say this wasn't common, but it happened in a handful of times. One episode is telling, I think. The curator of a museum in a remote location was doubtful we should have an interview, and she asked why I was there, saying that there were never any foreign visitors coming and that the place was of no interest to them. And my point was, well, they do not come because they don't know you exist. And in the end, I thought that this particular visit was definitely worthwhile, and I included that museum in my selection. I'm curious about these isolated museums. Uh, on the one hand, it's surprising that the curator is so aware that hardly anyone comes to visit that place. In your interview with them, did they say why they chose such a remote location? Well, sometimes it's because it's related to where an artist is from, so they're trying to, you know, have the locale really linked to the subject and honor someone from the area. Sometimes it's the wish of a particular museum founder to help revive a city or a region. So there are a variety of reasons, and um, these people are usually quite brave. I have to say, there is a wonderful museum in Hokkaido, in the Northern Island which is called the Kanya Suda Sculpture Museum, Arte Piazza Biba. It's quite a mouthful. That's the full name. So Kanya Suda is a sculptor. He is still alive. Um, and he's from there. He really wants to help put his uh, earth town on the map. It's a wonderful place. It's hard to get to, but it's exciting. I think it's part of the voyage to the museum. Sometimes it takes hours. You, dis you get lost. You discover somewhere else on the way. I really enjoy that part um, of the research. And I know that a number of travelers are also excited by that aspect too. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say that as an art lover, I guess going to these very difficult to reach places, just getting there, the journey is part of the museum experience almost. When you finally reach it, it's a sense of achievement. It's just stepping through the threshold. <laughs> Completely, yes. A real sense of adventure. <laughs> yeah. So one concept I found fascinating from my MA in museum studies was the notion of taxonomy, which is the way in which collections are categorized and grouped together, such as grouping animals into mammals and reptiles or aquatic and land-based at a natural history museum. The themes of some museums lend themselves well to this, such as history-oriented institutions like the DT Suzuki Museum and the Edo Tokyo Museum, while others, especially art museums, have a perplexing yet captivating mix of displays like the Intermediatek. What trends did you notice in the taxonomies of Japanese museums? You are right. Art museums lend themselves to a variety of thematic groupings and displays. 
Many museums, of course, present broad collections encompassing several centuries and media, but a number have a more focused outlook, if I can put it that way. There are, for example, ukiyo-e museums, ukiyo-e being Japanese woodblock prints. There are temple museums. And these can really be a boon for visitors as they allow to discover the temple's collection much more comfortably than in the original, often quite dark and not always easily accessible temple rooms. The Byodoin Museum is a good example of that. It's just outside Kyoto. In this particular case, one can still see the Phoenix Hall, the temple's magnificent main hall, but then its main treasures are now on view in a museum next door, where the display is wonderful and the lighting much better. One remarkable aspect of the museum landscape in Japan is the high proportion of private museums. They are founded by a range of entities from large companies such as Centauri to local businesses, religious cults, families, private collectors, visionaries, I think, in some cases. As an aside, it's interesting to note that collectors in Japan, instead of giving to public museums as they might do in the West, often consider opening their own. There is a form of freedom, perhaps, as a result. They open the museums they wish to have, and this can lead to some idiosyncratic but fascinating places, which often tend to be quite specialized. And this brings us to the groupings you were mentioning. Museums may focus on a specific theme, such as the tea ceremony, for example, um, a quintessentially Japanese cultural phenomenon. Um, other museums might, for example, zoom in on a dynasty of potters. And to go back to the, the tea ceremony, which many of us now prefer calling tea culture, the tea ceremony is widely used is a bit of a misnomer. Um, it is used in Japan, but uh, I think it's preferable to talk about tea culture. Tea culture lends itself particularly well to collecting. And then by extension to museum founding, there is almost a natural connection between the two worlds. Tea practitioners will gather utensils over time. And the culture of tea encompasses many forms of art, which naturally will fit in the museum sphere. Ceramic, of course, with a tea bowl being at the center of the event, but also lacquer, bamboo art, metal art, painting, architecture, interior and garden design. There are many museums specialized exclusively in tea culture in Japan. Typically, they will showcase the collection of one individual or family, and they can often be found in locations where tea culture has a long history. So in Tokyo and Kyoto, of course, um, and also in Matsui, in Shimane Prefecture, for example. And now the Intermediatech, which you mentioned in your question, is indeed captivating. Its multi-focused collection is perhaps a little perplexing, as you said, but when one considers the creation history of the place and the person who is at its helm, it's a bit easier to understand. It is located very close to Tokyo Station uh, in a grand building that used to be the capital's central post office. It is operated by the University Museum of the University of Tokyo, and its vast collection encompasses the disciplines researched and taught at the university, from mathematics to natural history, 
And so the artifacts date from the second millennia to BC to today. So how do you arrange and present all this? Well, it helps to have a museum director with a strong vision. In that case, Professor Nishino Yoshiaki, who along with a team of designers, has created a completely unique space, quite retro and very stylish, to showcase an ever-changing display of things ranging from skeletons to plaster mathematical models, ancient photography and seeds even, and where beauty can somewhat unexpectedly appear. The director has a close relationship with French museums, in particular with the Musée du Quai Branly in Paris. Um, so there is a, um, a long-term program of loans with the French institution and the Intermediatech. Going back to what I mentioned earlier, this is a museum with no defined route and no chronological presentation. There is definitely a subjective approach to the workings of the Intermediatech, including a strong aesthetic sense in the display, the elements used for presentation, even in the museum's publications. But I would say this makes for a stimulating bit of exploring. You also mentioned the DT Suzuki Museum in your question, and this is also a rather unusual one. It is located in Kanazawa, uh, where there are other great museums, by the way, and it's dedicated to an eminent Buddhist scholar. There is practically no artworks on view, but through the sheer beauty of Taniguchi Yoshio's architecture, the garden, some writings, photographs and calligraphy, visitors can encounter and reflect on the teachings and the life of D.T. Suzuki, who was from Kanazawa and died in 1966. This is a different kind of museum, a place for learning as well as contemplation. It is reflective of Zen and the architecture is just quietly spectacular, really. Another interesting trend in Japan is the grouping and collecting of historical buildings. There exist a number of venues that are basically collection of buildings. For example, the Edo Tokyo Open Air Architectural Museum, just outside the capital, the historical village of Hokkaido in the north, or Shikoku Mura in the south, which in their case feature examples of edifices typical of their region. These buildings, which usually were in danger of being destroyed, are preserved by being first dismantled and removed from their original location, then restored and carefully rebuilt within the larger state. Typically, they date from the Edo period to the early decades of the 20th century, and so there can be farmhouses, Buddhist temples, private villas, modernist homes, fishermen huts, small shops, or sento, you know, the public bathhouses. So this forms an artificial juxtaposition of periods and constructions, perhaps about 30 in a single venue or thereabout. But it's a fascinating way to observe a significant sample of the architectural heritage of Japan which otherwise tends to disappear fast. And it always makes for a delightful visit, I think, during which you can spend a few hours walking outdoors in a well-tended 
park. And I could also mention Minge museums. Minge is the Japanese folk craft movement. The term was coined by Yanagi Soetsu, who founded the first museum dedicated to folk crafts in Japan in 1936. It's called the Mingeikan, and it's, it's in Tokyo. And now Minge museums also exist in other regions. Crafts, or koge in Japanese, is another category for which Japan is justly famous. There is a public institution dedicated to it, the Crafts Gallery, which happens to be part of the National Museum of Modern Art. And this is interesting in itself. This is a public collection, which encompasses traditional crafts as well as contemporary creation. Yet it is presented separately from the collection of modern art to which it is affiliated. The craft gallery used to be in Tokyo, but it was recently transferred to Kanazawa as part of a movement to decentralize institutions. And there seems to be a strong interest now in the UK for Koge craft. So I wonder if this is going to translate into visitors' numbers. As I remember, the craft gallery in Tokyo was very interesting, but usually rather quiet. Definitely. Now, uh, I love how functional your book is, not only comprehensively guiding the reader through the dizzying number of museums to visit in the major cities, but also giving context for sites which sadly only offer information in Japanese. In your experience, what impact does a lack of information in English have as an international visitor? Well, first and foremost, it leads to a lack of visitors, which is detrimental to the museums themselves, uh, since they depend on ticket sales, at least for part of their budget. If you don't know the museum exists, you are not going to go. And if you can't tell what it's about, it's not really inciting, is it? Then if you are adventurous enough to go but can't read anything about what you're looking at, you are missing so much and the visit is less rewarding. I know there is something to be said for a direct, pure encounter with a work of art, without any interpretation. I can remember a curator of the Crafts Gallery, which I just mentioned earlier, explaining to me that there was only minimal information in their rooms because the museum preferred to let the work for themselves. I personally think that visitors ultimately want and really appreciate information, especially foreign visitors. I would say Western visitors are used to getting a fair amount of information. If you think about an exhibition at the British Museum, for example, there will be a panel with both substantial introduction at the entrance of the show then one in each of the galleries, then further information by each works on display. In Japan, the amount of information given can be scarce, and this can be frustrating, of course, for foreign visitors. So, for example, while the national museums offer a really good amount of information in English, and other institutions certainly do, I would say that the situation remains contrasted around the country, really even with the latest efforts in connection with the, the Olympics. The reality is, in the case of museums that have a small team of curators who have to change displays relatively often, there is not always the time nor the ability to prepare documentation in English. So it's true, this means that a visit can be a little less fulfilling in some cases. I'm thinking about historical buildings, for instance where the story of the owner's family is being kept alive, 
But foreign visitors cannot have access to all the details in the limited brochures they might get if they're lucky. In Sakata City in central Japan, there is the Homa historical residence, for instance. This is a late 18th century building that reflects the strict social hierarchy that prevailed during the Edo period. So the front of the residence is quite luxurious and it was reserved only for hosting high-ranking visitors, while the other part of the building is a more simple, typical merchant house where the Homa family lived um, until 1945. The family were wealthy merchants in, in the Edo period and their boats carried rice and other commodities to the country's main cities. When these boats were returning without their cargo to Sakata, they needed ballasts, which are the large stones still visible today around the garden of the house. So the family's history is physically embedded in the residence you, you can visit. Um, I find that fascinating and really quite moving, actually, to learn these kind of details. Um, and this is what I was also trying to, to share in my book. But only you asked about the impact the lack of information can have. And a negative one is ultimately the absence of visitors. I think it would be really regrettable to systematically bypass museums that do not offer any information in English, as some of them can really be special and offer an enjoyable experience. Artist houses, I think, are good examples of that. They can be wonderfully evocative. Visitors might indeed miss part of the story, but it can nevertheless be a fascinating dip into an artist's career, his home, own space, sense of decoration, his artistic output, and uh, a moment spent in a time capsule in many cases. And that would be sad to miss. So I would encourage visitors to go beyond the lack of information sometimes. I believe that prospective visitors benefit from having information not only about what might be on view, but also about the museum itself. It is relevant and enriches the visit to know why the museum is there, who decided to open it, the choices made when it comes to the architecture and the style of presentations, um, the kind of collection it holds, the direction this might be taking, Maybe there is a particular tempo when it comes to changing displays and organizing exhibitions. So this is why I really try to tell the story behind each museum, as well as, as, well as giving visitors an idea of what they might see on a visit. I definitely appreciate what you were saying earlier about how there are some spaces which lend themselves well despite the language barrier. I think art museums in general, you can generally enjoy art without necessarily being able to read the signs that are linked to it. I remember going to the DT Suzuki Museum when I was traveling in Japan before I could read Japanese, and it, it's really amazing how much the architecture embodies the philosophies of DT Suzuki. And although I sadly couldn't read much about the details of his life, the wonderful zen garden at the end where you can just sit and you're encouraged to just meditate uh, as part of the experience anyone can enjoy that so to avoid putting off any listeners who want to explore some of these more remote places there will usually always be something to take away from it even if you can't access all of the information 
That's right. And I find that in recent years, a number of places have made a huge effort. For example, the DT Suzuki Museum, which I agree with you, is really a wonderful experience. They have more and more information in English now. And it's very well written. You can have little postcards explaining uh, some calligraphy. Uh, You can listen even now to some lectures DT Suzuki gave in English. So access is broadening. But I I agree with you. I don't want to put off anyone (laughs) from visiting (laughs) these places. Definitely. I have to go back there sometime. So which places did you visit which really challenged the traditional notion of the museum? Well, a number of them did, and they left me enchanted and stimulated by my visit. So I could start by mentioning the Nagi Museum of Contemporary Art and the Towada Art Centre, two places dedicated to contemporary art and where artists were asked, in collaboration with an architect, to create site-specific works. So in that case, the collection materialized at the same time as the museum and building itself. The Nagi Museum of Contemporary Art is an ambitious municipal museum opened in 1994 in a small remote town in Okayama Prefecture. The building itself is a work of art. It was designed by Isozaki Arata, who selected a small handful, really, of artists to create bespoke works that occupy a single space each. Arata was inspired by the cosmos, and each room is aligned with the axis of the earth, the sun, and the moon. We cannot enter in all the details here, but I can tell you that this is a physical experience as well as a cerebral one. And upon entering one room in particular, it's impossible not to let the cry of surprise. The Towada Art Center, also a municipal museum, this time in Aomori Prefecture, a bit further north, north on on the main island of Honshu, was open in 2008, also with a view of revitalizing the city and its center. There you have about 30 artists from over 15 different countries, who were commissioned site-specific works. And the museum is an arrangement of spaces of different shapes and sizes, each occupied by one single art installation on permanent display. And the rooms are connected by glass corridors. So in between each viewing, visitors emerge back into the natural light and into the cityscape. It's quite playful. Each room is a surprise, themes and scales vary a lot. And I quite enjoy the strong connection with the fabric of the city. This exciting immersion in contemporary art, sometimes within an artwork itself, and where the body of the visitor can be challenged, also exists um, at Team Lab Borderless in Tokyo. Team Lab is a digital art collective quite famous now globally, and in this huge space inaugurated in Tokyo in 2018, Team Lab has created a spectacular array of immersive and interactive displays. This is not a collection of works in the traditional sense, as algorithms create the works in real time, 
and they respond to movements from the visitors. Team Lab called its museum borderless as a way to express their wish to remove boundaries between art and visitors, digital and not digital. There is no set route here either, and visitors are free to wander around, some doing so for, for hours, really. Another venue I would like to mention is the Enora Observatory, a site opened in 2017 by the artist Sugimoto Hiroshi. It's not very far from Tokyo. This is certainly not a traditional museum. It is a more complex in a spectacular location by the sea that embodies all the cultural interests and ambitions of Sugimoto. There is a gallery with some of his photographs, a tea house, two stunning outdoor stages, a fossil cave, gardens, elements collected from archaeological sites and temples. It is unique its own little universe, uniting all the art forms that Sugimoto has been exploring during his long career. And finally, I'm also thinking of a museum in Kobe, the Takenaka Carpentry Tools Museum, which left me very nicely surprised. I have to admit I was a bit doubtful before my visit. I feared it might be too removed from the traditional notion of an art museum, perhaps too technical, too niche, maybe dry. Um, I had visited a, a couple of other museums that similarly focused on a specific technique or material, and they had been disappointing. But this came highly recommended, so I went, and I was totally captivated. The building is very handsome. Takenaka was originally a carpentry firm in the Edo period, and is now one of Japan's largest construction companies. They have built a number of museums, actually, and there they did a remarkable job. And once inside, the displays are fascinating. The museum collects tools for carpentry as well as for metalwork, which it presents beautifully. There are models, including a full-scale tea house and videos, and different pieces of wood people can touch and smell. And visitors are introduced not only to the methods and skills of Japanese carpenters and craftsmen, but also to their spirit and aesthetic sensibilities. So this is a museum with a very specific focus, but that proposes enlightening ways to look at a variety of art forms and to learn via the prism of techniques and tools. So I, I found that really, really exciting. Yeah, amazing. So many places to visit. Mm. But, but uh, now that uh, tourism in Japan is just about restarting following the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions, what is the number one museum in Japan you recommend our listeners go visit? Uh, well, Oli, this is the question I dread the most when discussing <laughs> my book and research. It's not possible, possible to answer. I can't choose. There is a remarkable range of museums to see in Japan, which is truly wonderful because I think there is really something for everyone. And this is what needs to be experienced, I think. So my advice would be to first check if the place you have in mind is open and what will be on show. As already mentioned, museums in Japan tend to rotate their collection more often than their counterparts do in the West. This is due to various factors including the sometimes limited size of the galleries, 
for conservation reasons, and also because fundamentally there exists a taste for temporary display. If you think of the Louvre, for example, it will typically show its greatest treasures at all times. But in Japan, the situation is a bit different. Um, so if you think about the pair of folding screens depicting agresses by Ogata Koren, a masterpiece of 18th century Japanese painting, a very famous work of art listed as a national treasure and really reproduced in countless books on Japanese art. It is in the collection of the Nezu Museum in Tokyo, but you cannot visit the museum and hope to always be able to admire the screens. In fact, they are only on show for about one month a year in the early spring, in sync with the blooming irises in the garden nearby. The display of art in Japan was traditionally temporary, or perhaps linked to a particular event, for example. So some museums continue to follow seasons in their displays. It would not do to show a painting representing a flower at the wrong time of the year, however famous it might be. So being aware of that is important. And my next advice really would be to ideally select a few museums that are all different from one another so that you can get a taste of the museum landscape in Japan. A public institution, perhaps the Tokyo National Museum, and within it, the Gallery of Horiyuji Treasures, a personal favorite for the sheer quality of the collection and the architecture, could be a good place to start. And then for radical change in scale and scope, an artist house such as the Asakura Museum of Sculpture, still in Tokyo and not too far, which offers a wonderful immersion in the life and work of an early 20th century artist. When it comes to contemporary art and architecture, the Benese art site on the island of Naoshima is now globally famous and this is well deserved. My advice would be to try and not rush it and to also take the time to go to the two neighboring islands of Teshima and Inujima, which are part of the same project and really worth a visit in their own right. Then perhaps one of the country's many outdoor museums and when wander in the open among sculptures and art installations, so outstanding examples of architecture. I could go on really, but um, I fear this would run uh, over the time allocated for the podcast only. So I'll <laughs> stop here. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, Sophie. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects are currently working on? Um, yes, sure. After my second book came out, I began to think about how I could continue to share stories about Japan while working on a different media. I thought about doing video interviews as a way to explore Japanese art and culture while also, and this was really important to me, give a voice to people in Japan. The idea which took shape in late 2019 was to be in conversation with a range of people um, from museum curators to artists and collectors to show them at work, in their studio or at home with their collection and to discuss how they approach their arts or live with art. Sadly, with the COVID pandemic, I was not able to start the project in Japan so in the end, I initiated it here in London, talking to people about their passion for Japanese art. I went to Switzerland for one episode, 
but I very much hope to be able to take the project to Japan very soon. The series is called Encounters with Japan and the videos can be found on my YouTube channel and on my website. And in parallel, when I can finally return to Japan, I look forward to visiting new museums. Uh, they are always uh, opening a few every year and revisiting museums that perhaps extended or were refurbished. A number of them did in the run-up to the Olympics. So I'm eager to see these and I will continue reporting on them. Great. So we look forward to seeing all that come out. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining me today, Sophie. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Oli, for having me. It was an honor and a pleasure. I'm a fan of the podcast, so it's strange and thrilling to be a guest. You can find a link to Sophie's website in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninarch.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. You can also get in touch to recommend topics for the podcast at cgs at uea.ac.uk. As this is the final episode of the second series, I'd like to thank you all for your listenership. As I take on the daunting challenge of a PhD in the autumn, Beyond Japan will continue with monthly installments on the first Thursday of every month from September 2022. In the meantime, do get in touch and let us know what you've enjoyed and what you might like added to the series. We would be particularly interested in knowing if the additional transcriptions and subtitles has improved the experience for you. We hope you'll join us in September. Until then, thank you for listening.